The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. Someone said to me this morning after Bible class, they said, I regret that your PowerPoint didn't work. Uh, he was looking to take notes off of it. I want to assure you if a PowerPoint worked, uh, we didn't need the PowerPoint. We didn't need the slideshow. And so hopefully we got something out of that Bible class from, from um, Philemon. And hopefully we'll get even more out of Matthew chapter 16 this evening. Matthew chapter 16 this afternoon. We began discussing this morning about the essentiality of the Lord's church and how that no matter what man would deem it and has deemed it in the past couple of years, the church of our Christ, of our Lord, is absolutely essential to everything in this life and more importantly is essential to all of us in eternity. So I appreciated your attention this morning and I appreciate you being back here this evening as we continue on that discussion. Now this morning as we read the text, we're about to read it again, Matthew 16, 13 to 20. We started out talking about how the church is essential, number one, and mainly because of its designation. And what I meant by that word was its design. The Lord designed the church with a very specific purpose, a very appointed reasoning behind it and that was essentially to do two things the two things we mentioned this morning at least was one the church was to be separated from the world and that's found in the basic and, and primary meaning of the church the word church ecclesia the called out ones that were to be called out of this world but we also added to that definition as a matter of fact we really didn't add to it we just went ahead and stated what should have been obvious to us the whole time, and that is not only does the word ecclesia mean those who are called out or separated, it definitely means those who are synced. That is, those who are drawn together, those who assemble, those who are gathered together. And I mentioned there was many, many times in the Old Testament, particularly where the congregation is spoken of, the assembly is spoken of, and likewise the term, and they gathered them together, was spoken of. And so Christ, when he established the church, and here in this context, as he's promising to build it, what he's really telling those disciples is, we're going to create a, an entity, not a place, but we're going to create an entity, a body called a church, in which you're going to be able to separate yourselves from the world and sink yourselves together as members. And after that, we made mention of at least four things that we gain and we're blessed by as we gather to worship. These four things uh, cannot really be fully and completely realized unless we're gathered together. So the assembly that we have, the opportunity that we have to assemble is great because of those. And those that we mentioned, we said it was really set up to fuel our faith. It was set up to help our humanity. It was set up and established then to, uh, to apply our accountability toward one another and then as we were closing this morning out of the one point of the four, actually driving back over, I added a fifth one, so don't be scared of that. We're going to throw in a fifth one here because it's in the text. But we were lastly, lastly talking about how it enables our exercise. And as we gather together as Christians, we have the ability to exercise our ability to worship God as well as to exercise our ability toward the world to see God in us. And so that had to do with its designation. Number next, 
Not only is the church essential because of its designation. Here in the text, we'll reread the entire text again. You're going to see the church is also essential because of its foundation. Let's just read the whole thing, verses 13 to 20 again. Matthew 16, 13 through 20. And when Jesus came to the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say thou art John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom do ye say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell, or Hades, shall not prevail against it. Verse 19, And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he charged his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. And so we're going to continue basically honing in, delving into verse number 18. And particularly in that one phrase where he said, Blessed art thou, Simon by Jonah, flesh and blood hath not revealed unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And then he adds to that, Thou art Peter... And upon this rock I will build my church. Now, notice he says here that he's going to build upon, quote, this rock. What in the world is this rock? Well, this is the foundation that is one of the reasons why the church is so very essential. When Jesus made this statement, there are many people in the world, I would say the majority, as a matter of fact, of the denomination world, particularly one extremely large group, of the denominational world, the Catholic persuasion, who honestly, in their minds, I guess, have come to the conclusion that Jesus said, I'm going to build my church upon Peter. Matter of fact, they have even stated, some of them, not all, but have even stated and suggested that Peter was their first pope, therefore it was upon Peter of which the church was built, equalizing the fact that they're saying Peter is the foundation of the church. Now, you and I as Bible students, you and I as actual members of that church and not some denomination that's out there, we know better because we can read better. We understand here what Jesus is saying and we back away from it and try to delve into exactly what he meant, why he said what he said, and what he would will that would be understood by it. Now, you really have to put this in a lot of context. We're going to stay in the sort of immediate context for this. But if you back up into verse 13, and that first thing or things that he said, it started out revealing to us that Jesus was in, quote, the coast of Caesarea Philippi when he asked these questions. What in the world are the coasts of Caesarea Philippi. Well, basically there were two cities that were known as that of Caesarea and Philippi. These cities were built along the coast there, and these were the places where he was. Two places are listed. Most likely this is the one that is actually where the King, uh, King James says he was, and that is the coast. And he sat down in the vicinity of, most likely, of a great mountain. This mountain is said to be, and historically is proven, you can still go to it and find it, is said to have been about 9,000 feet high. 
So much higher than anything that we have around here, much higher than Chihau, much higher than many of our mountains, although not nearly the highest mountain uh, range or set of mountains in the world. But Jesus is over there beside the coast of Caesarea Philippi. He's there beneath the Old Testament city of Pan, which was established by Philip himself. And he's there at the foot of this big mountainside called Pan and historically and is known visually to be a very, very high rock edifice. That is made up the majority of rock. You say, well, Jim, why do you say that? Does that have any bearing on the text? Here's the answer, it doesn't. It doesn't have any bearing on the text other than we can just understand that Jesus probably spoke in illustrative terms like we do, probably used body, body language like I enjoy doing. You see this? And most likely as Jesus was set before these men, he allowed this area to become an illustration of the type of things that he was willing to build. Ultimately of what his desire was for that church to become, which was the foundation of it. Now, if you go on and examine the farther into the text there and examine what we just read and have quoted a few different times, when he said to Peter, which was called Simon Barjona in the previous verse, verse 17, but when he said, Thou art Peter, as you've often understood as Bible students and heard, <coughs> he was making reference to Peter by using a Greek word, again, Munford Greek, not Grecian Greek, but using a Greek word that sounds something like Petros. Petros. And at the end of that, it sounds like it's in a plural. The word that he uses here for Peter, uh, there from the translation that Petros, implied that Peter was a stone of sorts. And again, some take a hold of that and they say, well, there it is. You know, Peter's a stone. He's the rock. And upon this rock, he builds my church. Uh, there's the end of the argument. That's it. It was upon Peter, just like we said. Well, again, as Bible students, we probably have delved deeply, more deeply into that. And we understand that when he turns to Peter and says, Thou art Petros, and upon this Petra, a different word, I will build my church. The word for rock right here for, for, or for Petra is a word that implies a large, solid stone type area. I'm just imagining, that's my disclaimer, that as Peter was, as Jesus was speaking these words, more than likely, he said, Thou art Peter, the rock, the stone, and upon this rock, edifice, I will build my church. You say, now wait a minute. <clears throat> Are we then to be like the denominations and take that so literally? as to assume that it was on the Mount of Hermon, 9,000 feet in the air, near the city of Pan, near the coast of Caesarea Philippi, that Jesus chose to build his church? No. What Jesus is stating here concerning this subject is he's making a statement <coughs> not based upon what he's literally seeing, what he's visually viewing. He's making a statement based upon what Peter has just said. Again, Peter's confession that was made there in verse 16, as it's recorded, said, And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Two things he said we mentioned this morning. Number one, we said he admitted or at least contested the fact that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. He is the Savior. He is the Messiah, the anointed one that the Jews had waited for centuries on. And here he stood talking to these men. Number two, he mentioned the fact that Jesus was the Son of God. 
And oftentimes Jesus would refer to himself as the Son of Man. What do you mean by that, Jesus? Jesus is saying that I am humanity, but at the same time I remain as deity. Now in making those statements, he's saying there that Jesus is the Christ, yes, he's the Son of God, and then immediately behind that, Jesus commended him by saying, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Several statements again that are made there. Verse 17, when he refers to him as Simon, the son of Jonah, he's probably referring to him as the most common name that he possessed. Now there's been some argument among people on whether or not he had already been called Simon and already been called Peter and which of those names were really sufficient to describe him. I would say the answer is yes. Both. Matter of fact, you're going to read throughout the New Testament later on behind this. Take your time to do so. When Jesus is making reference to Peter, depending on the way that Peter is acting in the moment, he calls him one or the other. If Peter's acting like I would, and Peter's acting like he's lacking faith, or Peter's acting like he's undecisive, or Peter's acting like he does on one occasion when he speaks to Jesus as if he were a devil, he's going to call him Simon. When Peter acts like I would, he calls him Simon. However, when Peter acts like a Peter, when Peter acts like a rock or stone of any sort or size, he makes reference to him in that way. He's very clear. I don't know if that means anything really other than the fact I can only imagine that as he goes through the rest of his life that he's able to spend about three total years perhaps with Jesus. I don't think we can really take it that far. Jesus was ministering to these people three years. Disciples probably came in somewhere in the middle of that. Nonetheless, as Peter and Jesus are together, there were probably times when Peter started to go and started to say and started to do, and just simply Jesus turned and says, Okay, Simon. Peter said, I get it. I understand what you, I, I, I got to change. I got to do better. There were probably and likely other times when they were going along doing along, and Jesus turned back and says, I like that, Peter. That's exactly correct, Peter. Upon this rock, Peter, I'll build my church. And Peter knew then, okay, here we have the God of heaven in a body who's commending me, not condemning me for what I'm doing. And you can go through and read not just the account there in the gospel accounts, but you read through the book of Acts, and you'll see oftentimes that name just switches back and forth, back and forth between the two. Whether or not he had both the whole time, I do not know. However... There's a secondary definition. You've got primaries, you've got secondary definitions that apply themselves to words such as Peter. Yes, the word Peter, Petros, again, sounds plural. Yes, the word Petros can mean a stone, but it also means that which is shaky, unstable. And again, attributing to the character that we have revealed to us throughout the rest of the New Testament, the shaky one. But the reference that he made to the rock, he makes reference to that to establish to us and to them that this rock, this bedrock of faith, cannot be stirred and cannot be shaken. But it's not the man, it's the statement that the man made. Now let's take that a bit farther. 
We don't usually flip or flop, but I want you to flip or flop once or twice with me for just a moment or two to very familiar text to show ourselves and maybe just remind ourselves what this foundation actually consists of. Jesus said, I'm going to build my church upon this rock. Upon what rock? Upon this rock rib statement found above. But really, in a sense, what Jesus said is, I'm going to build my church on top of me. Go to the book of 1 Corinthians for a moment. Just a few pages over to your right. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter... Is it 3? Yeah, let's start out with 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Let's pick up in verse 10. 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 10. Mine, this is a brand new Bible I took out of the box this morning, so it's in the wrong place, but it's right there on this one. According to the grace of God, I'm in verse 10, 1 Corinthians 3. According to the grace of God, which God has given unto me, the wise, underline that phrase in your Bibles, master builder, I have laid thee, underline the next word, the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But every man take heed to he that buildeth, underline that word, this is verse 11 now, for other foundation, underline that word, can no man lay than that which is laid, What's the rest of that phrase? Read King James. Say it out loud. Which is Jesus Christ. Now I've looked at that all these years many times without having that aha moment and thought to myself, look at there, look at Jesus. He's the wise master builder and as a master builder he knew the essentiality and he knew the power behind building a good foundation. And so Jesus goes out and he builds a foundation upon which his church can stand. Uh, no. Jesus knew the essentiality of a good foundation, and so Jesus goes out and becomes that foundation. The Scriptures say here very clearly, no matter what translation you have, yea, it be accurate, and says, the other foundation can no man lay than that which is lain in the past tense, which is Jesus Christ. Why does that matter? The foundation matters because he takes and builds this church upon himself. And because the church is built upon himself and he chooses to do that in a singular way, which we'll mention here in just a few moments, he builds this singular church upon himself with a singular goal in mind to maintain and to contain a singular group of people to which he would take to a heaven that is designed for a singular group of people as well as a type and or character. He's going to build his church on himself. Now why does that matter? Well, tying this verse here, verse 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and our text together, if you could somehow uh, see both pages, then we can understand that he did something that was extremely essential. Notice it with me. Rereading the phrase, I'm in Matthew 16 again. He said, upon this rock I will build my church. He builds that church properly upon a foundation. He builds that church properly upon the statement that Peter made, but not because of the words of it, but because of the wisdom of it. The wisdom of Peter's statement says, Thou art the Christ and the Son of the living God. 
And so Jesus steps back and says, that is exactly who I am. That completely describes me as who I want to be or who I have discerned to be. And that within itself is a statement upon which the entirety of the church can be built. And he builds that. A few conclusions we can draw. Mainly, the first thing that stands out in my mind, if Christ built the church, according to Scripture, upon Himself, then the absolute conclusion is it could not be built upon anyone else. Now again, you take any denomination that is available today, which number in the thousands, and some of those are even willing to admit by the raising of a hand and say, look, the church that we are worshiping in today started back in 18 whatever blank in the blank and there was a great man named John and this and so and they were the ones who established this church. No ma'am, no sir. Not possible. Unless they're willing to admit that their church is established upon another foundation upon which Jesus didn't lay. And unless they're able to stand and spit in the face of God who said no other foundation can any man lay. The church is essential. It is essential because it is His body. Number next, not only because of its foundation, but the next idea is it's because of its possession. Now again, rereading the same verse again, verse 18, Matthew chapter 16. And I say also, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build, what's that next word? My church. Again, not another man's church. Not a church that will be divided up among men to where Peter gets apart and Paul gets apart and Matthew gets apart and Jim Burrow gets apart and Pastor so-and-so gets apart. Or Reverend this man gets apart. He said, I will build my church. It is his possession. It is only his possession. It is of the possession of no one else. How many of you know where I live? Everybody in the building, just about. If you don't hit your brakes, you can come see me anytime you want. Many have tried. You roll right through that stop sign, or right through that, uh, uh, yeah, stop sign, keep going. You're right there, you're in the porch, sitting in the living room. We won't welcome you, but we'll know you're there. That's my property. It's my property because I possess it. Because at some point as deeds were changed hands through the years, eventually that deed got a name on the front of it, which is legally James Edward Merle. That came to occur because I paid for it the purchase price that was being asked. Now you look around the world, my house is about this big compared to the next man who's this big, compared to the next man that's that big, compared to the next one who's built an entire, I, I, I worked in a house one time on cabinets, the house itself covered an acre. The structure covered an acre. But the price paid for even that home Hales in comparison to the price Jesus paid. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, 
Paul had been speaking there with the elders of Ephesus and he comes down to a place and he's trying to instruct them, remind them, to encourage them, to urge them, to whatever else you can put with that, that they need to take the oversight of the congregation, the church, that Jesus built. He urges them by saying that they are taking the oversight of the church that Christ bought with His own blood. There's never been a price paid like that. The possession that Jesus takes hold of has never, ever, ever been anywhere close to be paid by anyone else. Therefore, number one, it is not man's church. It's not mine to decide. I love where Mickey Haney lives. I mean, if you got a place in your wheel down toward the bottom, I mean, it could be Put me in it. But it ain't mine. And me coming into his property and sitting down and throwing up a little shack and he says, oh, well, you got to go. I like you, but you, you can't look. And I said, no, I'm staying. I'm staying right here and I'm going to do things my way and better yet, you're going to do things my way. Does that work? No man can stand and claim ownership to the church Jesus built to the one he paid for, to the one his blood was shed for. No man can do that. No man can make adjustment. No man can make uh, a change. No man can make even what he might call corrections. No man can make improvements because Christ is the singular possessor and owner of such. That's important. Now, the context of just the introduction this morning, not that this wouldn't apply to any time and every time, but it definitely applies to our time. If only Christ owns the church and no man can own it, no government can own it either. I'm not a political guy. I hadn't watched the national news in 10 years and I'm not watching it this evening. But I'm smart enough to know this. No one can dictate how we worship and where we worship and when we worship or anything else, even if they want to claim they run it. Now, we live in a free country. There are countries on this earth in which they have a state church, a national church. And the large majority of people, if they choose to worship at all, they are going to have to worship, according to their government, to worship in that church, the Church of England the church of whomever. The problem is they don't have a church. They don't have the right foundation and they've not paid the purchase price that Jesus paid. It's out of their realm. I pulled this up and left it on my cell phone back here, which I'll just go get. I've learned you take your cell phone out, you throw your wallet and your keys down. I still got my keys, though, to be honest. So you can separate yourself from what the world says versus what this says. Here's the First Amendment of the United States. First Amendment of the United States constitutes and prevents government from making laws which regulate the establishment of religion and the world that would prohibit the free exercise thereof. Now, that's not a direct quote. That's what it is. 
can't stop us. Do we and have we had to make decisions in the past two and a half-ish years on whether or not our personal safety and the safety of the members in any congregation is important enough or at risk enough to have to close a few doors, change the service time, adapt to a given expedient situation? Yes. But that is for an eldership to do, not a government. And in doing so, if any man determines they have the ability and the authority and the opportunity to change the possessor of that church, he doesn't. Why is that important? Number next. Not only is the church essential because of its designation, because of its foundation, because of its, in this sense, possession, but how about its preservation? Look at what Jesus says. He's not done talking here. You see a lot of red left, right? Jesus said in verse 18, Matthew 16, I say unto thee, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Look at the next phrase. And the gates of hell, Hades better stated, shall not prevail against it. What does that mean? What is the message? We could probably spend a, a good 40 minutes or longer having a discussion on exactly what the phrase, the gates of hell, perhaps might maybe mean. And we might come to one or two, maybe three conclusions about that. We might argue about the fact that, well, the King James has hell, it means Hades, what in the world is Hades, and you go back and forth. Here's the ultimate just summation of all. The emphasis not on where the gates are, it's the fact that the gates exist. Even if it were hell or Hades. He says the gates should not prevail against it. Two things. Number one, no man can push into Jesus' church. I get that there have been congregations that have been corrupted through the years because of the doctrines and the falsehoods of some certain men. I get the warnings in the New Testament that especially Paul gives in his writings about some who sneak in the side doors and the members there are unawares of it. But in the core of it for what it is, it will be preserved in eternity. If congregations are overturned because they've had itching ears, because they've been heaping to themselves teachers, that has nothing to do with the church right here. In order to get to that position, you have to move yourself out of the body. You have to take yourself out of the church. You cannot corrupt the core of what the church is because it will be preserved. That's one perspective. Number two, it also gives us the insight, these gates that the things that are contained on the outside cannot get in, nor the things that are contained on the inside can hold us down ourselves. So if we're talking about Hades, and we're talking about hell, quote-unquote, King James, and we're talking about men who are trapped in a devil's hell for eternity, so could be because of their disobedience or because of their disbelief or because of their discouragement or because of their downtroddenness, Jesus promises here that the preservation is eventually 
promise, and that is the gates of hell cannot prevail against its members. Two questions. Is it possible? Don't, don't answer because I know I'll be confusing myself. Is it possible to go to church? You can go to services. You can go where the church meets. You might even refer to this place as the church building, but it's not possible to go to church. It is only possible to be the church. And the gates of hell cannot hold the church in. All the devil lines up, even if it wrapped around the universe and back, to tempt us, to try us, to try to cause us to stumble, cannot hold us down on the day of judgment. Because the one to whom we rise is the one who established a sure foundation that is set by his designation. He designed it. It is the one there who by his foundation that he built, who by his purchase price possession that he paid, preserves us into eternity to stand with him. Is that all this says? I can't tell you if it is. But I know it's part of it. Jesus says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That it is us. So when you go through life like I've been through, and you name the point, you you name the problem, you name the position, you name the predicament, you name the possibility, you name anything you want, If there's anything in your life that has ever even felt as if it were holding you down and keeping you from God, there's really good news. It won't prevail. Two years of COVID, two years of sickness and death and trouble and trial, and for some of us and maybe all of us to an extent, a temptation to turn to God and say, God, what happened? Where are you? Why aren't you helping Why aren't you assisting? The truth is He has been the whole time. The reason we are where we are is because of Him. The reason we've ever been where we are is because of Him. And He's preserving His people. Someone asked the question, and I get it. I I, I had the entire discussion on this. I've had had the discussion just a week or two ago with Cliff himself. We came to the same conclusion, but we had the discussion. Will the church survive? You narrow that down and say, will the Aronitan Church of Christ, that congregation, survive? First of all, visually, I think it's done pretty well. Just looking around, having traveled from place to place, seen every extreme. I've seen extremes where congregations, when half the congregation was sick, the ones who weren't in the hospital were sitting in the pews. I've seen others where no one was there to be five or six at best. I think visually, the congregation has stood well. What about emotionally? That within itself has been a little bit more of a struggle. 
the worry, the concern, the heartache, the pain, the fear, the anxiety can heap and seep into all of us. What about spiritually? I'm sure there's been damage done. I'm sure there have been nicks in our armor, little dings and, and chips out of the stones. But inherently the question is never, will the church survive? It's will I. The church will stand. As a whole, the way it was established will always stand. Will I? Will I survive? You say, well, you know, who knows? These things, sometimes they spread and they catch us up. No, 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 no. Who cares? You can turn on the television any day. You can find someone who preaches what we refer to as a doctrine of health, wealth, and happiness. Guess what I want to preach? Health, wealth, and happiness. Spiritual health. Spiritual wealth and happiness that is a joy that's found only in Jesus. I disagree with their doctrine and their perspective, but I agree with his. Someone said, Can we all just agree to disagree? Can we all just agree with God? Number last. You like the word last, right? Not only is the church essential because of its designation, because of its foundation, because of its possession, because of its preservation, but friends, it's essential because of its commission. Jesus says in the next verse or so, verse 19, still referring to Peter and those disciples, he said, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he charged the disciples and says to go and tell no man he was Jesus the Christ. What is this singular commission of the church? You say, well, we do good deeds. Uh, we assist others. We do and all these things that could be named. He promised Peter he had given him the keys. Maybe that's why I left these in my pocket. The keys. He's telling Peter, I'm going to give you what is needful to be admitted into the church. You say, what keys did Peter possess? I don't know, ask him. You turn over to Acts chapter 2 and you hear Peter and the eleven standing there and you hear them preaching a sermon that contained within the keys to enter into the kingdom of heaven. To enter into the body. To make our way into the church. And Peter, when asked of the multitudes, what shall we do? What do we do about what we've done? You say, what did they do in Acts chapter 2? What are those men guilty of? They're guilty of crucifying the Lord. Crucifying the Lord. Guiltifying of crucifying. They're guilty of crucifying the Lord. Some of those men had blood on their hands. 
What do we do? Repent. First thing. Turn your back on that. Let that be a part of your past. Your unfortunate past. Your undesirable past. Your sinful past, but let it be a part of your past. Now turn toward Jesus. Remember the cross that he hung on. Remember the way that he looked. Remember the words that he uttered. Now be baptized. There were probably men who physically passed beneath the cross upon which Jesus' literal blood drops fell on their heads. Probably men who literally, who sat for the cross, we know at least of some soldiers who did such, know not how many, we know the parts were divided by four, but whomever, who sat and heard his words and heard him utter the sayings that he did. We know of one who finally stood up who finally was willing to admit this is God. This man was actually God. So Peter, do you have keys? I do. Peter was given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. The keys that he was given gave him the ability to bind on earth what was bound in heaven, to loose on earth what was loosed in heaven. What does that mean? Does that mean, well, then maybe that concludes that Peter was the first pope and Peter did make decisions and maybe Peter become a possessor. Of the... No. What that says is whatever God has said, Peter, you bet say it. Whatever God has not said and what he has stood against, you better not touch it. Whatever God is bound, you better bind. Whatever God is loose, you better bind. So could Peter have stood on the day of Pentecost and they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter says, uh, uh, play, uh, pray this short prayer. Repeat after me. He couldn't have said it. God hadn't bound that. Or Peter says, well, God said be baptized. We're going to let loose of that because I think it'd be a better idea being as we're in a desert type location if we just forego that. And we'll, we'll sprinkle, I got some water on the camel's back. He couldn't do it. Neither can any man today. Someone asked, what does God say about blank? What did God mean when he said this? What does God intend by that? The only answer to give is God meant what He said. What about my family? What about those who have gone on before me who didn't know about this? I don't know. But I do know this. God has meant what He said. Is the church essential to this life? It is. Are we not grateful that we are members of it? We are. Can we not go forward from this day and always function in the way that he described and prescribed it to be? We must. If you're here this afternoon and you're not a child of God's, the invitation that has always been opened by our Lord that was certainly opened there on the day of Pentecost is still extended unto us. 
The question could still be asked by someone, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here, I'm hearing some of these things, I'm listening to these, I, I've studied and read my Bible before, but what am I going to do? Do exactly what Jesus said. You do precisely what God willed, and you take your life in the direction that God desires. If you're here this evening, you're not a child of God, the invitation is open. Through faith, repentance, confession, and baptism, we put on Christ. We do it in His manner and after His way. That's obedience, nothing short. If you're here this morning, you're more like I am. And I admit, I've got the card, I've got the badge to wear to say that I've not always seen how essential the church is. I've not always appropriated and appreciated how valuable it is that we are members of it. If that's causing me to stumble in my life, it's time to stand up, get up, and walk out. Walk out in the direction of God and don't turn back. Through prayer and repentance, you're invited to come home. While together we stand and as we sing.